So I have a, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read our passage out of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought, uh, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. That's anoint Jesus, his body. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as I read this portion of Scripture, it's, sometimes it's overwhelming to think about the miraculous resurrection of our Lord and what it means for us historically and for your kingdom and the importance. So Lord, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And tonight I ask you, Lord, that, that if there be anybody here who is going through a period of uh, struggle, of doubt, of questioning, that you would encourage them. You would encourage them through uh, my words, Lord, as we look at historic, historically the evidence for the resurrection. And Lord, may we also keep in mind those that aren't here, that we know, who don't believe, that are skeptical. Lord, would you give us a uh, renewed sense of urgency that we would take seriously all the truths that you've given us, Lord, that we take them seriously and we would think of our neighbor, meaning those we work with, those who live next door to us, those who we see at uh, the coffee shop, those who wait on us, serve us. Lord, our neighbor is anybody we come in contact with. So, Lord, a renewed sense of urgency that they, too, need to know the truth about the resurrection so they might have the opportunity to have eternal life. Again, thank you for this time, Lord. May you bless it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So some of you may be sitting there either now or at some point through tonight's lecture thinking, why do I need evidence? I've never doubted the resurrection. Why does anybody need evidence? Can't we just believe? Can't we just have faith? And what I want to say to you is, I'm glad that you don't need evidence. Truly, I am. And I wish it was the case. However, it isn't the case for many people. In fact, here in the West, as we become um, more and more secular society, 
the need for good answers and, uh, and a, a, a strong apologetic are extremely important, not only for bolstering and strengthening the church, but also for reaching out and uh, giving people reasons to believe. So, while some of you may not need the evidence, our neighbors do, our kids do, our grandkids do, um, uh, perhaps you do, perhaps you're going through a time of struggle. So, bear with me, and if, if you were thinking that this topic is not all that interesting, I hope that uh, these next few moments will help change your mind. I have two friends here in town, here in Corona, that I've known for a long time. Uh, them and their families both attend uh, pretty large churches here in town. And they both sent away children to college. And they've both experienced the heartache of having those adult children now say that they're walking away from the faith. Because while at college, their faith was challenged and they didn't think there were good answers to meet those challenges. And that is heartbreaking because I know for a fact that there are very good answers to every challenge to our faith. In fact, when I was away at school, when I was in college, I faced a similar dilemma which caused me to seek out answers which in turn strengthened my faith. I had a course, a philosophy course in miracles, and um, I was probably the only person in there that um, didn't assume a naturalistic worldview, meaning I didn't begin assuming that miracles were impossible. And um, unfortunately, most of the class did and the professor did too. But it was classes like that that will undermine your faith if, um, if you don't have answers. So take tonight's information. Not, uh, there's no way you're going to be able to memorize it all, grasp it all, but take some notes. Uh, be encouraged that the information is there, and may this lead you on a quest to um, make this information your own. And uh, perhaps you can share it with somebody and save somebody's... Uh, heartache having their kids walk away from the faith. So, what is the evidence for the resurrection and how do we know? Is it simply reading the scriptures and saying this is the evidence? What is the best explanation for the empty tomb? What we're going to be doing is looking at um, we're going to be looking at the evidence as a historian would. And I'm not talking about just a Christian historian or, or, or a, a New Testament historian who happens to be a Christian because there are multitudes of New Testament historians that teach in our universities that aren't Christians. They just happen to love literature and they are drawn to the New Testament. Yet they have a naturalistic worldview which means they exclude anything that even hints at the supernatural. So they automatically reject miracles. They automatically would therefore reject the resurrection. So, 
Historians collect the data. And in this case, for us, the data happens to be the New Testament. And so before a skeptic would say, before they're able to say, you're not playing fair. You don't get to use the New Testament. You, you can only use sources other than the New Testament. Let me say to that, what, what historians do, and I'm going to lay out some, uh, some points for you to, to write down and keep track of, is they are not necessarily interested in trying to find sources that don't agree with their worldview. They're willing to look at all the sources as uh, documents worth exploring. So, I want you to keep in mind this. Before the New Testament was put together, the New Testament comprised 27 books, before that happened, each of those 27 books were individual documents. So the four Gospels are individual documents. The book of Acts, all the letters of Paul, they were not put together as the New Testament until much later, until the, uh, probably the third century. Okay, so they were individual documents. So that's how a historian can view these documents when they look at the Gospels. The question is, are they reliable? That is the question that a historian wants to find out. Are the documents reliable? And when it comes to the Gospels, I'm going to give you a few points here. When it comes to the Gospels, these are the questions that they have answered, okay? So in order to uh, make the case that the Gospels are credible and reliable, I'll give you five points. Number one, there is insufficient time between the events that are recorded and the recording of those events. So there's insufficient time for there to be embellishment. Insufficient time for legend to creep in. So the events occur, uh, the recording happens, and the time between the recording and the events in the Gospels, there is not enough time, not sufficient time, for legend to creep in. And we know this. We know this because... Uh, many scholars of Greco-Roman literature know how many generations it takes for legend and mythology to creep in. And it's at minimum two to three generations. And we know from when the documents were written, that doesn't give enough time for legend to creep in. Number two, the Gospels are not analogous to folk tales or mythology. The gospel narratives are about real people, real places, and real events. They don't read like mythology. There's no analogy between the gospels and what we know to be uh, mythological writings. You have real people named, real places named, and real events that are corroborated by writings other than the, the gospels, New Testament writings. Number three, the Jewish method of transmitting sacred history was highly developed and extremely reliable. Very reliable. It's an oral culture. 
Uh, memorization was a, a highly developed skill. Teachings were repeated, and there was a method for recording important sacred information. And the Jewish method of doing it was, of, was ve uh, very good. Number three, there were significant restraints against embellishment. Because the eyewitnesses and the apostles and the disciples were living at the time that the documents were written, they provided a tremendous restraint against any type of, uh, uh, again, legend creeping in. So you have another a reason there. And then the fifth reason that historians uh, unanimously agree that the Gospels themselves are credible documents, historical documents, is that the Gospel writers themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have, pro have a proven track record of historical reliability. Where corroboration exists, the writers are extremely reliable. Where the things, where the, uh, the people they spoke about, whether you know, political leaders, uh, religious leaders, when they're named, towns, bodies of water, roads, regions, etc., people groups, they're, uh, they're, they're very, very credible. So where corroboration exists, the gospel writers have a proven track record of high degree of reliability. So, you're going to find that historians agree that the Gospels, because they were written down and circulated during the first generation after the events, and while the eyewitnesses were still alive, that there was no time or place for uh, legend to creep in. Um, and on top of that, you know, see, sometimes you'll hear this, sometimes you'll hear, hey, aren't, aren't the writers, aren't they biased? Doesn't that discount what they're writing because they have a vested interest in what they're writing about? The, the problem with that objection is that you'd have to throw out just about every writing of history because writers always have an interest in what they're writing about. That would be like saying, that um, we couldn't rely on the, uh, um, the documentation of the Holocaust if the writers happened to be Jewish because they would have a vested interest in shining a bad light on what the Nazis did to the Jews. That doesn't make sense, does it? Just because they have an interest in the topic doesn't mean the recording isn't going to be accurate. So let's move on to this. How does a historian move from accepting the Gospels i.e. and or the New Testament, how do they move from accepting that the Gospels are generally reliable? Okay, again, remember, we're not talking about uh, Christians who accept the New Testament as being inspired and inerrant. We're talking about uh, historians that just view it as historically reliable. How do we move from that to determining whether a particular event right? A particular event is authentic. So I gave you five points on which historians are generally agree 
that gives reliability. Now we want to know about particular events. How do they determine whether an event is an authentic event? Again, I'm going to give you five points. Number one, the event fits historically. So in light of everything else that was written, it seems to just fit. Okay, it's not, it just doesn't come in from uh, left field and not be a part of the narrative. It fits the narrative. It fits with known historical facts. It fits with known historical uh, happenings in that region, that time, that place, etc. Number two, the event itself is recorded by more than one source. So you have one independent source, you have a second independent source that almost automatically gives it 100% certainty. Two independent sources. So more than one source is a huge factor in determining authenticity. What's a third point that historians look for? How early the source wrote or recorded the event. How early? So if you have early documentation and more than one independent source, you are guaranteed that the event being recorded happened. Number four, another point. The idea is called embarrassment. If what's being recorded or written down appears to be embarrassing in, the, in, the, in that particular narrative, then you would think that the writers themselves are actually recording something that was true. Because if they were that biased source, they'd want to gloss everything over. They wouldn't want to include something that was embarrassing to the text. Wouldn't you agree? So embarrassment is the... Uh, is my fourth point and the thing that historians look for. If something is embarrassing to the narrative, automatically again, it lends authenticity. And number five is coherence. Does the event or incident fit with the overall narrative? It's almost like historical fit, whether here historical fit had to do with you know, time and place, coherence has to do with all the rest. So here's what historians agree upon. And I'm talking about historians that are Christians, historians that are agnostic, historians that are atheists. Virtually unanimously agree that number one, Jesus of Nazareth had been condemned by the Jewish authorities for blasphemy and was number two, delivered to Roman authorities under the pretext of treason and number three, he met his death by crucifixion. So historians agree with those particular facts based on all the points that I already laid out and for those reasons that uh, Jesus was condemned by the Jewish authorities for blasphemy. They turned him over to the Roman authorities for treason and that he was therefore then crucified by the Roman authorities and died. So that brings us to the resurrection. How is the resurrection evaluated 
in this same manner. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what's the evidence for the resurrection, and then how do we best, how do we explain it? What is the best explanation given the evidence for the resurrection? We're going to look at three independent established facts. Before I do that, I want to say that somebody uh, left me a phone and a wallet up here. Wow. Anybody? Ah, Nathan. By the way, this guy right here came in tonight and he goes, hey, you're teaching tonight. I go, yep. I go, hopefully there's something I say that is impactful to somebody. And he says, straight-faced, I doubt it. <laughs> so thank you, Nathan. Thank you for the vote of confidence. I should have kept that wallet. Okay, we're moving on to the resurrection. What's the uh, first of the three independent and established facts? Number one is the empty tomb. So we're going to look at that first. The empty tomb. Number two, the appearances of Jesus to the, to the disciples as alive. This also is an established fact. Number one, the empty tomb. Number two, Jesus' appearances to the disciples as alive. There's a reason I'm, uh, it's worded that way. And number three is the origin of the disciples' belief in the resurrection, which is the impetus for the start and spread of the church. So, I'll, I'll shorten that for you. Just put the origin of the church as the third established fact. Empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, and the origin of the church. So what we need to remember is the context of Jesus' life. Keep that in mind always. Who he claimed to be, who others saw him to be. Because our argument will obviously be that the best explanation for these three facts is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he was raised as vindication of who he claimed to be and why he came in the first place. So, we are going to know that ahead of time, obviously. So we examine the evidence. Why do historians believe that, that the tomb was empty? Why do they believe the tomb was empty? Number one, because the recording of Jesus' burial. Let me explain what's going on. Our documents record the burial of Christ. The burial itself is evidence of the empty tomb. Why? Because the disciples who began preaching a risen Christ could have never done that in the very place where the crucifixion happened 
They could have never preached a risen Lord if the tomb still contained the body. Does that make sense? So, a known burial, a public burial, a known location is evidence that the tomb was empty when the disciples began preaching a risen Lord. Number two, the independent and early sources for the recording of the burial. <clears throat> that too. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1 Corinthians, all record the burial. We just said the historians look at what? Multiple sources, early recording. Those are two of the biggest that um, automatically determine authenticity of the event. So the burials recorded in multiple sources and extremely early sources. A third reason uh, that we're sure about the burial of Christ it was the naming of Joseph of Arimathea. So in Mark chapter 15, verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb. The burial of Jesus. The naming of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin himself, the Sanhedrin being sort of the legal council that was the, um, that was the group that actually persecuted and condemned Christ himself. So you have a member of the Sanhedrin named as the person receiving the body and placing him in his own tomb. The disciples would have never named someone from basically the opposition who would have been a publicly known figure unless he actually was the person who laid Jesus in his own tomb. You could have never imagined that the disciples would have invented a non-member of the Sanhedrin. It, it just doesn't fit. It wouldn't make sense. So we have a known burial, which led to preaching. It also led to um, Jewish opposition. There would have been immense Jewish opposition if the burial location still contained the body. The Jews would have simply pointed to the body, would they have not? 
So, on top of the known burial site, the empty tomb, empty tomb is attested through independent and early sources. The same ones I talked about for the burial, the same ones for the empty tomb. You have five or six independent sources, which is unheard of when it comes to historical documents. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, the, the preaching in Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 with Paul. That's no less than six independent accounts. And these are the earliest accounts that talk about an empty tomb. A, a, a third point that historians point out is Mark's account, the account that we're reading out of. They separate that because Mark's account is the earliest of the Gospels and it's the simplest. And uh, they think it's uh, probably the most accurate. So we have an empty tomb, we have a known burial site, we have independent early sources, we have Mark's account. Another piece of evidence for the empty tomb the discovery of the tomb by the women followers of Jesus. So the women followers of Jesus were the ones who discovered the tomb is empty. The writers of the Gospels recorded that. They record the women as the ones who discovered the tomb. Remember our criteria of embarrassment? We said if something's included that is embarrassing to either the writer or their, their position, it would more than likely be true, or they wouldn't have included it. Well, the fact that the women discover the tomb is an embarrassing fact because of how women were viewed in the first century. Number one, that their testimony wasn't allowed in court. Yet you're, we're, we're using women as, those, as their testimony to testify to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, yet their testimony wasn't even valued in the first century. So they were, um, that would be an embarrassing fact. That alone leads historians to say the tomb must have been empty. And the fifth and final reason that the uh, historians believe that the tomb was empty is that the Jewish response presupposes the empty tomb. How did the Jews respond? If we go back to Matthew chapter 28, listen to how the Jews responded. They would have never responded this way unless the tomb was empty. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they, when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came. They came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So think about that. Matthew's saying that that story was spread to this day the day that he wrote the book of Matthew. So the Jews were spreading that story that the, the disciples stole the body. Instead of just going to the tomb, exhuming the body, and putting the body on display, that would have ended the disciples' preaching 
on the spot. So their response, right, to create this fabrication about the disciples stealing the body presupposes that the body wasn't in the tomb. So, our first piece of evidence for the resurrection is the empty tomb. Our second piece of evidence for the resurrection are the appearances of Jesus as alive to his disciples. I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read from verses 3 through 8. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. So Jesus appeared to Peter. Then, to the twelve. Then, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul says first he appears to Peter. Paul spent two weeks with Peter. If you go to uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Paul's talking about what happens after his conversion. Paul's conversion is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Paul talks about him initially uh, for three years, um, not going to Jerusalem. Then he goes to Jerusalem and spends 15 days with Peter. He sees Peter, and he also sees James, and we'll get to James in a minute. And Peter basically tells him all that happened with him. And so he is recording that Christ appeared to Peter, and that is corroborated in uh, the book of Luke, chapter 24, where it said, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon Peter. So you have independent early sources. And by the way, historians love Paul. They love Paul's writings. They don't question his writings at all. At least they don't question Romans, 1 Corinthians, uh, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, Philemon. They don't question those writings at all from Paul. And so anything from 1 Corinthians, they know it's Paul. So Christ appeared to Peter. Then he appears to the 12. Who are the 12? The 12 disciples. That's corroborated independently also. Then he appears to 500. Who are the 500? We don't know who the 500 are. However, we do know that Jesus first appeared to his followers in Jerusalem. Then as the angel says, he's going to meet them in Galilee. He probably appeared to a large crowd in Galilee where he did much of his teaching. Then he comes back to Jerusalem again before he ascends and makes more appearances. So he appears to 500 brethren. A, st a strange addition there. This is the only place this is recorded. He says, most of whom are still alive. You would have never made that claim unless there were 
those people that were alive that could vouch for that fact. Most who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Definitely strange, unless it's true. Unless it's true. Paul could have, would have never mentioned something like this unless it was true. Now, to the conversion of James. He, Jesus appears to James. Do you know who James is? James is Jesus' half-brother. Jesus' brothers, Jesus' family, did not accept him during his three-year ministry as the Messiah. James was his younger half-brother. In fact, none of his siblings did. If you look up uh, Mark chapter 3, his family says that Jesus is out of his mind. That's Mark 3, 21. In John chapter 7, verse 5, something similar. Um, and here's what's interesting. So you have James, the younger brother, who rejects his older brother as the Messiah. Yet, because of the resurrection, he's transformed. Historians say this is a remarkable uh, transformation. This is a, one of the, the key uh, evidences for the resurrection is the conversion of James and James be, ends up becoming the leader of the Jerusalem church. Again, if you read in Acts chapter 12, you'll see that. Acts, cha Acts chapter 21 verse 18, you'll see the same thing. And um, to have a family member be converted, you think, well, okay, well, what would have done that? It wasn't the preaching, it wasn't the miracles, it wasn't the claims, the crowds. No, but it was the resurrection. So you have Peter, you have the 12, you have 500, you have James. Then you have all the apostles. Again, a larger group than the 12. And then Paul says, finally, last of all. He mentions his own... Uh, a conversion where Jesus appeared to him. And again, that's, you can read the story in Acts chapter 9, 1 through 9. This, this too is remarkable. These twin conversions of James and Paul, historians find uh, truly remarkable. Here you, have, here you have a life that Paul lived in, in uh, poverty and hardship. A life where he was whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. He was left for dead. He was imprisoned. He was in constant danger. He was ultimately martyred for his conversion. He was martyred in Rome. And uh, why? All because he saw the risen Lord. Think about what he gave up. He was a rabbi. He was a religious leader. He had... Uh, wealth and power and so these appearances that Paul lays out are truly remarkable and historians do not doubt that Jesus was seen as alive and let me explain what I'm saying historians who are Christians obviously believe that the record is clear 
Jesus rose from the dead bodily, and his appearances were of him in that risen body. Historians that aren't Christians, historians that don't accept the supernatural, have to have some naturalistic explanation, do they not? Because they don't deny that the disciples saw something. That's why I said it the way I said it, that the three lines of evidence are the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus as alive to the disciples. So historians that don't accept the supernatural do accept that the testimony is clear that the disciples and others, as we've just seen, saw Jesus as alive. The problem is they know the historical record is so strong on this point, it puts them in a real bind and it leads to all kinds of fanciful explanations. But we won't get there this evening. And, and, and one other point. There's a difference between appearances and visions. When Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7, he had a vision of the Lord. Appearances are, in, are, are, are a, a Jesus bodily in space-time. He took up space in his appearances. Visions don't take, take up space. Visions happen in your mind. Appearances happen outside of your mind. So that's, so we have the empty tomb, we have the post-mortem appearances of Christ, and we have the beginning of the church, which is the, what we would say the origin, origins of the disciples' belief that Jesus rose from the dead. The Christian faith owes its origin to the first disciples' belief, belief that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Nobody, except perhaps some conspiracy theorists that sit on their computers in their mother's basement, <laughs> believes any differently. You know what I'm talking about, the uh, online brigade. The disciples placed their lives and futures on the belief that Jesus rose bodily. They were willing to, and in many cases did, find it necessary to die for their beliefs. And I have to say, this to me is perhaps the most powerful evidence for the resurrection of all the evidences. People, people can deny or try to deny certain aspects of the gospel accounts about Jesus' life, about his death, burial, and resurrection. But what they can't deny is what's in front of them. And that is a history and a, a Christian church that has spread worldwide and that had a beginning in the first century. That is undeniable. And so how do you get a group of followers who experienced the loss of their rabbi, their teacher, who were expecting to go back to their day jobs of fishing and tax collecting and whatever else. They were down and dejected. 
and yet they turn the world upside down with their preaching. So this to me is the most powerful evidence for the resurrection of all. The disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead even though they had every reason not to. They had every reason not to believe in a resurrection. There was no anticipation for it. How many times did Jesus try to tell them what was going to happen to him and they didn't understand and it didn't make sense until it happened? So these three facts of history, which are in no way controversial, the birth and origin of the church is not controversial, the appearances aren't controversial, the empty tomb is not controversial, the question then becomes, how do we explain those three facts? How do we explain those three facts? And for you and I, we have an answer, don't we? The question is, what about for those that don't believe what we believe? And so I'm hoping that this information is going to encourage you to, and if, if you're not comfortable with um, taking the, the, uh, the development of these ideas further, that at least you know the ideas and answers are there and that will encourage you in that regard and, and, and give you some boldness. So, here's where our Gospels agree. Our Gospels agree that Jesus was crucified by Roman authorities during Passover. They agree that uh, after being arrested by the Jewish Sanhedrin, that he was charged with and convicted of blasphemy. They also agree that he was then slandered before Pilate, the governor, on charges of treason. The Gospels also agree that he died within hours uh, upon crucifixion and then was buried late Friday by Joseph of Arimathea in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and that it was shut with a large stone. They also agree that the female followers of Jesus visited the tomb early Sunday and found it empty. They also agree that Jesus then appeared alive to the disciples, including Peter, and who then, they all became proclaimers of the message of the resurrection. And so when we look for a best explanation, here's what historians want to answer. And you're going to want to make note of this. Historians look for a best explanation, and they say it will be a best explanation if that particular explanation has what they call a, gr a greater explanatory scope. Okay, so you take all the data, you take all the information, all the evidence, and, you have a, and then you come up with a hypothesis. Well, maybe the disciples uh, were conspiring. Or maybe he didn't really rise from the dead and they were just hallucinating. Or perhaps they hid the body or... or so. You, you're looking at all these explanations, all these hypotheses, and historians say, which explanation has greater explanatory scope? Meaning, it explains most or all of the evidence. So given all the evidence, which explanation covers the gamut? That's one. Number two, greater explanatory power. So not only does the evidence uh, explain uh, 
the, the hypothesis explained more of the evidence. Number two, the hypothesis, hypothesis explains um, in, a, in a more cohesive and coherent way. Explanatory power. Does that explanation make sense given all the evidence that we have? Number three, plausibility. So you have scope, you have power, you have plausibility. It fits better with the background beliefs. That's why I said to keep in mind, remember who Jesus said he was, who he claimed to be, and the things that he did. He wasn't just an ordinary individual, and then we look back on history and say he rose from the dead. So is it plausible, given who Christ claimed to be, that he rose from the dead? Based on who he said he claimed to be, absolutely. So that's three. Those are three of the most important. Um, I'm going to leave it at that, just those three. And then the last one would be the best explanation brings all of these together better than the other hypotheses. And so given the naturalistic explanations, which we don't need to get into tonight, which is like a conspiracy. The, the disciples conspired to trick everybody. Or that Jesus didn't really die. He just laid in the tomb for two days and sort of revived himself and pushed the stone out of the way and then came out and he never really was dead. And then he fooled the disciples in, into the fact that he was healthy now, even though he'd been, you know, all the loss of blood and had a sword thrust through his side, etc. That's the apparent death theory. Um, or the fact that the disciples forgot where the body was placed, the displaced body theory. They didn't know where it was. It just, it just decayed in an unknown location. Or that the disciples were hallucinating the whole thing. All these appearances, they all hallucinated the same risen Lord. And some of them, at the same exact time, they had the same hallucination. So those are naturalistic explanations. Those are explanations that people use that reject the supernatural. They have no other choice given the evidence. But friends, we accept the resurrection. We believe that Jesus did rise from the dead bodily as our Lord and Savior. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our writer Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain also. Is the resurrection important? If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain also. The resurrection is the most important event in human history. The most important event. Paul continues and says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people 
most to be pitied. That's true. We are fools if Christ didn't rise from the dead. And we are to be most to be pitied. But you know what? I've staked my eternal future on the fact that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt for the reasons I said tonight and for many other reasons, my own changed life, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead bodily. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's coming back again to receive his church to himself. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm going to pray. And if you have never had an opportunity to confess with your mouth, and you're ready to believe in your heart, we'll have pastors down here, elders down here, that would uh, like to pray with you. But with that, I will, um, I will close with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's trustworthy. I thank you that it's more than just the secular historians say it is. They just say it's reliable. Lord, we know that it's inspired. We know that it's true. We know that what's recorded in it, we can stake our lives on it. We thank you, Lord, that the resurrection is a fact of history. And it's the Christian faith, is the only faith that can be evaluated this way. That we have propositions that are true, that events, that a people that locations, this, our faith is a faith, it's a living faith, Lord. And we have a living Lord. And we thank you so much for that. <clears throat> and God, I just pray if there's anybody here tonight that's struggling with, with doubts about their faith, they just need a little bit of encouragement that their faith is true, I just pray that you will encourage them in that way. If there's anybody here, Lord, that doesn't know you in a, in a saving way, that you will draw them and they will come forward and, uh, and ask somebody to pray with them, Lord. And we just thank you for your word. And we just thank you for this, your t- this time, Lord. And I thank you so much for living truth as a body. I just love this church, Lord. I love its leadership, pastors. <clears throat> I pray you continue to bless us as a body, Lord, that we may be a light here in this in this dark world. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.